Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. Before we begin just a little bit of business, we've decided to change the frequency of this podcast from weekly to fortnightly, every two weeks. We'll still release on Fridays, but for a little while, because of commitments we both have, we'll be doing this podcast fortnightly. This week, we are pleased to welcome photographer and writer Ben Long. Ben, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Ben has written a lot about photography, and in particular, he has just released the ninth edition of his book, Complete Digital Photography, ninth edition. How do you get to nine editions and still function and still continue <laughs> finding ways to update a book? I mean, I've done books in three or four editions, but nine, that's that's amazing. You know, one of the things that always strikes me every time I do a new book is, you know what it's like, the the uh, you know you read a book three or four times while you're writing it it goes to a technical editor who reads it it goes to a copy editor it goes to an editor and so it's still shocking you know i've gone through now nine cycles of that which means there have been you know 40 different people reading this book multiple times and still i can open it up and go Ooh, wow that sentence is clunky how did that get through over the last 18 years (laughs) or or typos you're always going to find a typo There is something called the law of conservation of typographical errors. Every time you eliminate one typographical error in a book, another one spontaneously generates elsewhere. That's that's (laughs) definitely my experience. Something funny happened on this book. There is a section uh, in one of the chapters where I talk about uh, your brain's ability to project an expectation onto what you see around you. It's why... You can't see your car keys when they're sitting right in front of you on the table. If you're not expecting to see them there, you won't see them. And so I talk about how when you're out walking around town during the day, if it's familiar territory, you don't actually have to stop and look at everything to understand what's going on around you. You don't have to look at an object and say, oh, that's a big metal box on wheels with a window and a license plate and all that. You just know car. And that means that you don't actually see the details and you don't possibly recognize that that would be a very interesting photograph. We put up that chapter as a free download off of the Complete Digital Photography website and offered uh, a free print. This was before we were we were done with the book and we said we would give free print copies of the book to the first two people who could send in a typo. And someone wrote in and pointed out that in that section where I'm talking about how you only see what you expect to see, we misspelled license plate somehow. I don't remember <laughs> how exactly. And I I almost want to leave that typo in because it's such a great demonstration of the exact photographic concept that I was talking about. And that's been in there for like four editions. Yeah. When, when I studied linguistics, they talked about schema theory where you have a schema. You know that there are certain things that are part of this schema that you expect. And, and as you say, you ignore them and you don't pay attention to them. It's like that famous video of the what is it? Cheerleaders on a basketball court. How many cheerleaders were there? And did you notice the gorilla who comes through and walks through? But this is really interesting. And we're we're jumping ahead of where we should be. But this is something that we've talked about on this show previously um, about the fact I like to look at photo books. I like to see how other great photographers have taken pictures. And uh, a year or a year and a half ago, I got a number of books by William Eggleston and I looked through hundreds of his photos And then I went outside with my camera and I was seeing the world the way he was framing his pictures. In other words, seeing his composition gave me 
the tools to see the world with that composition. I found that fascinating. It is. I call that eye training. Everyone understands that musicians can train up their sense of, of pitch and rhythm and intervals and whatnot, and photographers do the same thing. You, you can train up your eye to see certain compositional ideas, and anyone who's ever gotten in a photographic rut should know that it's possible to train your eye to only see a particular thing. Doing something like that seems to also give you permission to go and look for things like that. That is definitely a blind spot of mine. I will go out and I will look for the big picture, the, the wide shot, and I have to consciously stop and say, okay, I'm going to now look for small details or something I can zoom in or something at my feet. And that has to be a very deliberate thing on the part of my brain because for whatever reason, that doesn't come naturally to me. Seeing what somebody else has done isn't just the, oh boy, I haven't taken this angle from of this shot from, you know, at this time of day. It's the, oh, okay, well, what if I do everything from four inches above the ground? Or seeing all the other possibilities can be so instructive. Well, one thing about photography that I find is that there is a sort of a group think that develops um, that photography magazines and sort of basic photography books show the same type of photos. I, I have this subscription service called Readly. It's, I hate to say it's a Netflix for magazines, but that's what it is. It's like 3,000 magazines. And there's like a dozen photo magazines. And I flip through them very quickly. And you get all the same types of photos. You get all the same types of portraits and close-ups and landscapes. And, and the one that I particularly don't like is these portrait mode landscapes where there's a castle like way in the back but all you, you see these big rocks in the foreground and i just don't get that point of composition and they keep showing this and the only way to get out of that as you say get out of that rut is to look at books by photographers and we've talked about that many times on the show i, I think my best investment in photography has been my library of books by photographers to show me ways that one can create pictures that aren't like this stuff that's in all the magazines it's a strange, I agree completely. It's a strange thing about photography. I noticed this teaching. Uh, you can walk into a beginning to intermediate photo class and say, who are some of your favorite photographers? And you'll get these just blank looks. And maybe, you know, someone will go, oh, Ansel Adams? Because it's the only name. <laughs> I know if you walked into a writing class and said, who are some of your favorite writers? You would get passionate responses. For some reason, photography does not uh, get the beginning photographer interested in looking at, at the history. And I, I can't figure out what that is. <laughs> Why not? Well, uh, most people, again, we'll, we'll get back to talking about your book in a minute, but I think this is interesting. Most people get into photography because they got a camera and they want to take pictures of a vacation of their family or they've got a phone now and they're taking pictures and they don't come into it through the art door. They come into it through the memory door. So they're interested in capturing reality. They're not interested in interpreting reality and creating something artistic. So it's not entirely surprising. I'm wondering when somebody's going to jump in and say, you know, who are your favorite uh, photographers? And they'll be like, oh, well, there's, uh, you know, at Smileyhead and <laughs> at X4 3211. Boy, like her work is amazing. Do you guys know the Instagram account uh, Insta Repeat? It's actually yes. Insta underscore repeat. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's. I don't know who it is, but they gather, they, they troll Instagram and look for people who have composed the exact same shot. And it's astonishing how much stuff they find. And at first you can look at that and go, oh boy, these, these poor losers, they're so uncreative. And I actually have a different take on it. I think it's a, I think it's, it, it's a fantastic example of how we all have an innate sense of composition. 
the fact that so many people recognize the same image shows that there's just something about the human brain that likes to see certain organizations in certain ways. And I think it's good for people to know that because if you're intimidated by composition, I believe that the process of learning composition is not learning, you know, golden ratios and Fibonacci series and all these diagrams you see. It's not about learning composition. You already know composition. Everyone already does. It's about learning to tune into that part of your brain that does know how to balance things and recognize particular relationships. Every time I see that golden ratio thing in a magazine, I'm like, okay, this is not how it works. You don't go out and plan this. You just happen to find a photo afterwards where you can fit it on. Um, but it's not how it works. And, and this rule of thirds is not a rule. It doesn't exist. Get rid of it. Yeah. Um, none of these things exist. And we've talked about composition a, a number of times here. Um, but, but it is interesting because you could use machine learning to take those repeated photos of the same place to find the ideal composition of what non-artistic photographers want of a particular site. Mm. Um, and it is a good point, you know. Okay, the person putting their hands up to hold the Leaning Tower of Pisa, <laughs> or or the thing where they're pointing at the moon or a particular thing. And, and it's true that there are a lot of those cliches, but people do shoot those exact same photos. Yeah, one thing that's interesting about InstaRepeat is looking through it going, well, actually, some of these are nice photos. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. That everybody recognizes, which is, yeah, it's great that everyone can recognize them. So who are some of your favorite photographers? Oh, boy, I'm terrible at these kinds of questions. Uh, <laughs> you started it. <laughs> um, I, I, I get stuck in overthinking it. People ask me, you know, if you could come back as any animal, what would it be? Well, I don't know. Am I coming back somewhere, you know, where I'm underwater? Then I want to be a fish. Uh, <laughs> my favorite photographers really vary depending on mood. And, and also, I think what I've been looking at recently, you know how it is. You look at somebody and you're really into them for a while. Lately, I probably just because I bought a couple of books that I really like. There's a Finnish guy named Penti Samalati who uh, I just can't stop looking at his work. Most of it's black and white. He shoots this very odd, really wide aspect ratio. And because he's living in Finland, it's mostly snowing all the time. And I think one of the reasons that I have an affinity for his work is because shooting in the snow is so much like shooting desert, which is really my favorite place to shoot. Uh, mm -hmm. But he's got a I don't want to try and describe what he's doing. Uh, you can find his stuff. All. We'll put links in the show notes. Gosh, who else? Sticking in that kind of landscape vein. Obviously, there's all the classic works. I can always go and look at Cartier-Bresson and Elliot Erwitt and, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, of modern photographers, gosh, well, actually someone here just across the bay, uh, Richard Misrock, a landscape photographer who does a fantastic job of straddling a somewhat conceptual realm, but still making photos that stand on their own as interesting works. He had a great book in the late 90s called Desert Cantos, and his thesis was, why do people think the desert is empty unless you go do something there? Why are people only interested in the desert if you're landing a space shuttle there or having Burning Man there or dumping nuclear waste there? <laughs> <laughs> and so he kind of was, he built a project of, of shooting that idea which is a pretty conceptual idea, but the photos that came out of it actually just stand on their own. His kind of next biggest work is something that you really have to see in person. He lives in Berkeley with this incredible view out the Golden Gate. And so he took uh, these large format, I think they're eight by 10, pictures of the sky and printed them to be ridiculous sizes, like 10 feet wide. And all they are are photographs of color gradients. Um, there's nothing, he doesn't have the bridge, it is just an empty sky. And that also sounds really conceptual and art schooly, and it's a little more 
I like abstract photography, but that's pretty abstract. And yet you look at them and you, you just fall into them. They're incredible. And they do a really nice thing of helping you recognize something that you don't really know is there. That's what I find interesting in photography. Jeff was talking about the details. Um, he said on a previous show, him and his wife went to Hawaii and he was taking all these panoramas and vistas and his wife was taking all these close-ups and details and all. And what I find interesting in photography, and back to William Eggleston, is you see things that you didn't know were there or you see things that you didn't look at because they didn't seem interesting enough. But when you do look at them, in the frame of the photograph, all of a sudden they take on a certain level of interest. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the really fun things about teaching is to send a dozen students into the same environment what, and to see that they all come back with something else. I mean, keep all come back with something different. I think people can get really in their heads about, well, you know, I, I mean, and I find this for myself. You go out and you see the world the way you see the world, which means every photo you take looks like a cliche to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. and this is why it's important at times to to shoot around other people, because it's nice to find out that, oh, I actually do have a vision. I do see things differently. doesn't mean it always produces great images, but at least I don't have to worry about, am I this? Everyone notices this. Why am I taking this picture? No, everyone doesn't. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about your book a little bit more. Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. Okay, so we're going to talk about your book because it is really quite impressive. Um, most photography books focus on a thing, a little thing, how to shoot landscapes or how to shoot portraits or how to make money on photography or something like that. And what you've done is you've, you've created a book, and, and the title kind of gives the hint, Complete Digital Photography. I wouldn't say it covers everything about using a digital camera, but it's pretty darn close. This is the kind of book that a beginner who wants to take the time to really learn things will find that this is literally a course in photography. And someone with more advanced knowledge is going to find a lot of details as to how to do more advanced things. Why did you craft a book like this to, to be so comprehensive? The first edition of this book came out, I think, in 2000. That was the year that Canon shipped the D30 the first digital SLR that was under $5,000. That was the very beginning of what was going to become an onslaught of digital SLRs over the next 15 years. Uh, and so at that time, the digital, digital photography was in a very, very different place. There were no camera phones. Point-and-shoot digital cameras were pretty useless in terms of doing any real work because they had such bad noise problems. That first digital SLR that that Canon introduced at the consumer level, $3,000 for a three megapixel SLR that 
kind of had a usable ISO 1600. So we were, you know, really at the beginning, but it was attracting a lot of people who had never taken a photography class before. And so it seemed like at that time there was an audience for, I, I've got to start at the beginning. I don't know exposure theory. And along the way, I also am not that comfortable using a computer. So there, it just felt like this is, there is a need for your one-stop shop, learn it all. And I also feel like to try to teach someone shooting without from the very beginning, encouraging them that post-production is something you need to be thinking about while you're shooting, just the way that film photographers did it. I'm exposing this with the idea of printing it a particular way. Well, you need to be exposing your digital photographs with an understanding of what you can do with them in post-production. So I feel like you kind of need it all in one book. It's not that different now when you think about it. Someone who's never really had a what I call a real camera as opposed to a smartphone, they want to get into photography. They've been shooting with a smartphone, but they really have no idea what they're doing because a smartphone is a point-and-shoot camera. So right. once you get to a camera that has buttons and dials, it's true that most people don't know what to do. And, you know, I see this in a couple of Facebook groups. I use Fujifilm cameras. I'm in a couple of groups, and you get some new people. Oh, I just bought a X100F, and I, what do I do? And all these people that read the manual. And it's like, you know, you don't read manuals. It's the, well, I do, but most people don't read manuals, and they're not very useful. But it's true that people will come in without... They just don't know anything. And what I like about your book is not only do you go through the exposure triangle and how to work with flashes and things like that, but you explain how the sensors work and how the light comes in the camera. And I, I think a lot of people are maybe going to skip over that sort of material. But for those who want it, it's not the kind of thing you see on the Internet in photography articles very often. I, you know, every time we go to do a new edition, I think about those first couple of chapters that are about how your eye works and how your sensor works. And I every time there's a push to cut pages and I think, well, maybe these should go. And every single time I reread them and go, no, this is important for a couple of reasons. One, knowing how your sensor works, some of that theory actually does come up as you get into more sophisticated edits. Knowing how your eye works also means knowing how your brain works and how your visual system works and where some of your stumbling blocks are in terms of being able to see things and recognize things. But also I feel like if you're a creative person, you should be someone who's curious about things. And even if I couldn't tell you a reason, a practical money-making reason to know how the human visual system works, as a creative person, you should want to know anyway. And I, I feel almost like reading those chapters is about practicing the process of being an investigative, curious, creative person out in the world. Yeah, and because not everyone knows what the different terms that are used mean to start with what the buttons mean and what the dials mean and all that and of course it's different on every camera but there is a, a general vocabulary that's the same and you can sort of wallow for a long time unless you've figured that out it's like focal length for example you talk a little bit about focal length and, and we have this problem today with crop sensors the equivalent focal length which is sort of what the camera sees isn't the same as what's on the lens and this can be really confusing, and, and a lot of people don't understand that because everyone knows that you know your first lens has to be a 50 millimeter. But if I buy a 50 millimeter for my Fujifilm camera, well, that's not really the ideal lens to be a first lens for someone. Absolutely, yeah. I don't know if you guys have started to notice this. My dad built a darkroom when I was a little kid, so I started with 35 millimeter film. And when digital SLRs first came along, of course, I was doing those multiplication factors in my head. Oh, I've got a 50. What does that end up being? And now I also shoot with an X-T3. I've been using the 
Fuji system for several years, so I'm shooting almost exclusively with a cropped sensor camera. And it's interesting, I don't, I don't do that anymore. I don't worry about what the equivalency is in 35 millimeter. I just know, oh, my 18 to 55 is going to be the right image for, or the right lens for what I'm wanting to do here. I have learned the field of view of my lenses. And I think one thing that you get someone who's not coming from a 35 millimeter background being taught by someone with a 35 millimeter background who has to think in terms of those lenses because they know a 50 millimeter lens is a normal lens. They try and teach that to the newcomer who really doesn't need it. There's no reason for them to know what the field of view is on a full frame camera. Well, but there is, because before I started shooting with Fujifilm cameras, I was using Olympus. So you've got a different crop factor. Um, mm -hmm. It's two to one instead of 1.5 to one. So, you know, my 25 millimeter was the 50, whereas now it's the 35 millimeter that's the 50. So when you make that transition, you do need to keep this in mind. If you're using a zoom lens, it's not as important, obviously, but I tend to shoot with primes. Certainly, if you're changing from one system to another, you're going to feel weird until you have a way of, of reconciling that. But if you've never used a camera before and you're picking up a camera with a sensor of a given size, relating that field of view to something that you've never used before is doesn't do anything for you. Yes, fair enough. I take great issue with the term full-frame photography or full-frame camera Yeah, because my iPhone is a full-frame camera. It's got a lens that's engineered to cover its sensor properly. That's what a full-frame camera is. <laughs> well, full-frame is supposed to be that relationship to 24 by 36 millimeters of 35-millimeter film, and, um, right. w which, is, which is in some ways an accident as it was when it, was, when it became a norm, the, the fact that it was 35-millimeter. Um, and that's just through a domino effect. It's rolled down through history. And it's marketing. It's like... Oh, mine's a full-frame camera, so it's better than yours. Oh, mine's a medium <laughs> format. Ooh. <laughs> so because you've been teaching both in a book in this sort of expansive way and your, your lynda.com videos, over nine different editions, what sort of things have you found are different in teaching people now versus teaching people earlier? Because since so many people now are photographers, they've got a phone, do you find yourself jumping in at a higher level when people are coming to you for questions? Or do you, you know, pair back and say, okay, let's, let's get back to some basics of what you're seeing? That's a very good question. And actually, you, your, your guess is correct. I, you know, we can talk about how, oh, you know, cell phone cameras, I can name a number of bad habits that, that constantly shooting with a cell phone camera, aiming for Instagram. There's a way that that gets you bad habits and things that you have to unlearn and so on and so forth. But I think that we would be somewhat foolish not to acknowledge that practice is practice. And I feel like on average, if I walk into a beginning photo class now, the skill level is higher than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. People are surround as much as we can say, well, they don't look at images. If there's going through a bunch of Instagram feeds every day, they're looking at more photographs than the average beginning photographer used to look at. And just all that exposure does help. A technical thing has changed. People are just much more competent with a computer than they used to be the average person. But I, I, I think there's a really good shift that's happened just in the last seven to 10 years. And I liken it to, so you guys remember the desktop publishing explosion where suddenly oh, yes. graphic design tools were dropped in everybody's lap. And so people just assumed if I can learn these tools, I'm a graphic designer. And they all used 17 fonts in a flyer. Exactly. <laughs> they weren't designers, so they produced crappy work. And yep. at that time, we even distinguished between graphic design and desktop publishing. And yeah. over time, people came to realize that, wow, I kind of suck at this <laughs> and they stop, they stop trying to be graphic designers 
And now things shifted back. There is no longer the term desktop publishing. There's just graphic design. We know that you use these tools to use it. And to be good at it, you need a certain level of training. I feel like the same thing happened with photography. Digital cameras, and particularly Photoshop, dropped instant craftsmanship into everyone's laps. And so they thought, well, now I'm a photographer. And they went out and started to work and were feeling good, as you do as, as a beginner. And then you your aesthetic develops along with your skill. And as your aesthetic develops, you start thinking, wow, I've got a long way to go. And I feel like we've in just the last seven to 10 years, we've come around to people understanding being a photographer is not knowing how to use a camera in Photoshop. It's about a lot more than that. And I want to learn that. And I'm, I've been very pleased to find that in general, people come into classes understanding that it's, it's a, it's about more than button pushing. There is a consciousness shift that needs to happen. And that I think has been the biggest change. And, and I personally feel that's really good news. But the people that you're teaching, why do they want to learn photography? Is it because they want to document their family or their vacations, or do they have aspirations of being more creative? That really depends on the, the venue you're teaching. If you put up a workshop on composition, you get people who want to be creative. Um, I teach every year a series of workshops for public school teachers in Oklahoma, where public school teachers aren't paid anything, but they get to come to these workshops for free. And there I get a, a wide range of things. Some of them are wanting to use them as teaching tools. Some of them are, I'm the yearbook editor. I need to have my kids shooting better. And it's interesting because they come in saying, well, you know, that's what I need to do. But once you sit down and start working with them, no, they, they all want it as a creative outlet. If you, if you just give people the chance, they're, they all, you know, they look at the computer next to them and go, wow, their pictures are a lot better than mine. I want mine to look like theirs. Not because they're better at reporting something or recording something. They, they just want that. So I think maybe the answer to your question is, is both. Even the person who wants to just document things, when you, when you let them relax into it, they want, maybe all they want to do is document things, but they've shifted to, and I want that documentation to be very artful and expressive. It's kind of interesting because photography is one of the few creative endeavors that pretty much anyone can get started with quickly. I mean, learning a musical instrument is an arduous task, learning to write or paint or anything else, whereas we all know how to push that button or tap the screen to take the picture. And it's not that far for someone who's really interested and really willing to look into it to go from taking a picture to making a creative picture with the intention of creativity. I agree. Uh, I have a friend who's got a PhD in music education, and he told me years ago that the difficult thing of teaching someone to play a musical instrument is that it's so long before they get to be musical. There's just so much foul-sounding drudgery you have to go through. And the great thing about auto modes on the camera, and this is how the book is structured, the first shooting chapters are put your camera in auto mode and let's go practice, because there's plenty you can learn in auto mode about composition and camera handling and so on and so forth. And you can at least come back knowing that you're not going to have a technically flawed photo. So you can start feeling creative and you can and actually being creative. And it's just a lot more fun than those disciplines where you have to actually develop your craftsmanship before you can even begin to try to express something. Yeah, tell me about it. I know. <laughs> I know well about the musical part. Um, it's interesting that, that, you know, there is such contempt for using auto mode among real photographers yet i read an interview with martin parr recently he shoots auto mode um he even said in a in a podcast interview i have never processed a file in my life he has minions to do it for him but he doesn't care about that <laughs> he wants to to get the composition he wants to get and he lets other people deal with the rest you, you know you hear about photographers who spend all this time and photoshop and layers and 
and masks and dodging and burning. And here's a guy who's, you know, one of the great photographers and boom, auto mode and hands it over to his minions. I find that quite interesting. I have a friend who years ago got to assist Jerry Uelsman in the darkroom. And Uelsman, of course, is, was before the era of Photoshop, a, a compositional master. And, and he would build these wildly intense composite photos. And he did it by lining up a whole bunch of different enlargers and having his uh, negatives and paper already in place. And it came up in class that there are photographers who don't print their own work. And some student was appalled that, you know, well, how could you shoot it and not do the darkroom stuff yourself? And Uelsman said... Oh, I hate shooting. If I could get someone else to go take the pictures, I'd gladly do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the thing is that there shouldn't be elitism in photography. Is oh, I shoot manual and I'm better. And, oh, you know, I've got all this um, B word that I won't say the word of background blur um, because I have this really expensive lens. And it's really annoying. You know, it's it's like we can take pictures and we can make something nice and we, we can catch moments. But all we need to do is do it and not really worry about all these things that get in the way. Yeah, and it and I think it's hard for people who are experienced photographers to remember how much there was to learn. And so maybe you've got a lot of experience and you've got a friend who's just got a camera and they're shooting in auto mode and it's your tendency to go, wow, you know, you need to get that out of auto mode and take some control as soon as you can. And here, let's set your camera up for back button autofocus and all this stuff. And it, <laughs> it you know, I see it in class. You can explain the exposure triangle over and over and over and over and still your students are going to come back having forgotten to put ISO back down where it needs to be and they were shooting in bright daylight at ISO 1600 and everything's gone wrong. There's a lot of stuff to remember. And the great thing about having these different modes is you can focus a student on, look, right now you don't have to think about that. You can only think about this. And now let's switch to this mode. You can only think about this now. And so before you try to do a new photographer the favor of telling them, here, take more control of your camera, just remember that they're really in over their head at the moment, <laughs> trying to remember a whole <laughs> lot of different things that you take for granted. It, it's true. I, I started taking photos back in the 70s. Um, I did a photo shop, a photo shop class in high school. <laughs> um, and we had cameras and we had a dark room. And, you know, what did we have? We had the focus, we had the, the aperture, your ISO, ASA back then was your film speed. And you had that little, in the camera that I had, it was like a little needle that would, yeah, a lollipop light made a needle would get in the middle of the circle. And then to focus, you'd have the two bits of the rectangle that would wind up. And that was all there was, unless you had a flash or something else. That was all there was. It really wasn't that complicated. And, and I look at my cameras now, and they're computers with lenses. And I really would like to go back to something simpler. I mean, some of these features are really good, but some are just so, you know, they just get in the way. They do. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is some of the features, you know, really all the controls on your camera do are set aperture and shutter speed. You've just got a lot of different controls for doing that in different ways. You can change to a different metering mode, which will calculate a different shutter speed and aperture. Or you could do the same thing by just using exposure compensation. The problem is to a new photographer, they think that, no, the metering mode is adding in some extra secret sauce that I don't understand. So I have to yeah. know it's, it's all just different controls to the same parameters. And mm -hmm. so you can relax a little bit. But the camera is very intimidating in that way. Okay. Um, this has been really interesting. We're going to have links in the show notes. Complete Digital Photography 9th Edition. If you are in the position where you've got a camera and you are intimidated, read this book. Take your time, a chapter a week, and go through it. You'll learn to be a better photographer. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. This was great. Okay, so it's time for our snapshots. And interestingly, Jeff and I both have snapshots in the same category of photo gear. Jeff, you go first. 
Well, uh, my snapshot today is a tripod. Now, I know everybody thinks, oh, tripods, what's the difference? There can't be much difference between tripods. Oh, friends, let us tell you <laughs> that there are so many differences between tri tripods. So in my case, it started with need. And the need was uh, I went to Hawaii and I wanted a tripod that I could take hiking that would be more portable than I have like this old beast of a Manfrotto, uh, which is a good tripod, but it's huge and heavy. So instead, I got an aluminum tripod by a company called Three-Legged Thing. And this is the Three-Legged Thing Punks. Cory aluminum tripod kit with airhead. What's nice about this is that it's compact. It's fairly light. It's about 3.4 pounds. It's aluminum, so it's fairly light. It's not as light as something like a carbon fiber tripod, but it was also only $200. So it's 3.4 pounds. The load capacity is 30 pounds. Uh, it goes up to 58 inches, and when it's all folded and compact, it's 13.7 inches. So I was able to just attach it to the side of my Peak Design backpack and carry it um, literally anywhere I wanted to go. So, Kirk, what do you have this time? Well, I have a tripod as well. Um, I had had, I think, a Manfrotto tripod like you, and it was a bit bulky and heavy. And um, I saw this tripod from Vanguard. It's the Alta Pro 263AB. You'll see that Vanguard has a whole bunch of different tripods and the main difference is the material, whether it's aluminum, whether it's a carbon fiber or whatever it is. And when I saw this, it was on sale and I figured I would grab this because it has a feature I really like. A tripod, as everyone knows, it has that pole that comes up the center. But on this, you can also raise the pole all the way and then tilt it on an angle. Aha. Uh -huh. So this means that I can, for instance, yesterday I was shooting something in the kitchen and I needed to shoot down onto a worktop surface. So I was able to have the tripod with the top pole out parallel to the ground and the camera pointing down. You can get any angle. You can tilt the legs to like 25 degrees and then have the central pole come out on an angle to, say, get a close-up of a flower that's right near the ground. So you get a lot of positions with this sort of tripod. It's a lot heavier than yours. It's a little bit more than five pounds, but it does go up pretty high to pretty much six feet high, I think. Um, I'm six feet tall, so when I put it up to the, the, the maximum height, it's fine. It's not the kind of tripod you're going to take when you're going hiking, but for a multi-purpose tripod, I find it really good. I find the options for moving it around really useful. It's got a ball head. It's got a level. It's It's got so many different knobs for adjustment that every time I use it, I have to try two or three to find which one is going to make it <laughs> turn or raise or lower, etc. It's not that expensive. On their website right now, it's 130 pounds, so about $130 or something like that. And, and I think that's what I paid when I got it on sale last year. My Manfrotto sort of has some of that capability, but you basically have to take it apart if you want to do that vertical thing, which occasionally has been worth it, but usually it's just a big pain. So that sounds really versatile. It is. And again, I'm not going to take this anywhere very far, but I do like to shoot things in my garden, particularly flowers. And I, I shoot product photos sometimes for articles that I'm writing. So it's really useful to have the, this option. So this is the Vanguard Alta Pro 263AB. We will have links in the show notes. Thank you very much, Jeff. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. 
see the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week, thanks again for listening.